From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employees that lose leave because they have to work during the pandemic may have a chance to get that leave back. The acting director of the Office of Personnel Management, Michael Regas, says his agency will issue regulations to streamline the leave restoration process for employees who lose use it or lose it leave. Federal Times reports Regas says the guidance will come out, quote, in the near future. The Defense Department has a new chief data officer. Pentagon Chief Information Officer Dana Deasy says Special Operations Command CDO Dave Spurk will be the first department CDO that reports to him. FedScoop reports former DOD CDO Michael Conlon will move to the office of the chief management officer as chief business analytics officer. The first black chief of staff in the military has chosen the first woman to be the top enlisted leader of a service. The incoming chief of staff of the Air Force, General Charles Brown, named Joanne Bass to be the next chief master sergeant of the Air Force. Federal News Network reports she's the command chief master sergeant for the 2nd Air Force at Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board will roll out its new L funds at the end of this month. The six new funds will include target retirement dates spaced five years apart instead of ten. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. What's the difference in what you're doing besides spacing them out five years? What's the advantage that the participant gains by being able to choose a fund spaced five years apart? It provides someone a more targeted um, allocation. So if you think that what, what we're aware of is we've had participants who think they're going to retire or need their money in um, 2025, for example. And so they'll invest in the 2020 fund and they'll invest in the 2030 fund. This uh, eliminates that having to sort of synthesize a fund and allows them to uh, just invest in the 2020 fund or 2025 fund. Um, the out years, the L2065, the 2060, and the 2055, all start with a 99% um, allocation to equities. So because those individuals are so far out from where they're gonna need their money, it is very heavily weighted to equities. Tell me about the process that you undertake at the TSP for changing the investment mix in each of the L funds. That happens on an ongoing basis. You're constantly updating that mix, right? Every year we do a review to see, um, for example, within the equity allocation, you've got the C fund, the S fund, and the I fund. And so we look to see whether, A, the equity allocation overall should be changed, but then within it should should the S fund be weighted more heavily, the I fund be weighted more heavily. Similarly, within the bonds, you've got the G and the F fund, and we look at that to see what the long-term prognosis is and what we should, how we should do it. Um, to be clear, it's a long-range thing. It is not like every year we're tweaking it for the next year. If we're making changes, it's because over 30 years, we think it's going to make a difference. Who decides what the right fit is for an individual participant? If I'm in the 2030 now, 
who's, who decides whether I go into the 2025 or the 2035 or whether I want to stay where I am, Kim? The participant. Um, the TSP is a participant-driven um, plan, uh, as all 401ks are. The only thing that will happen automatically at the end of the month is people who are invested in the L2020 fund will be invested in the L income fund because the L2020 fund goes away because we're in 2020. Um, and those people will be put into the L income fund. Should they choose to move into the L2025 fund, that is entirely up to them. And obviously we have been doing a fair amount of education of our participants to let them know what their new options are. You anticipated my next question, which is what resources do you have available to help somebody understand what the options mean and what might be the best fit for them? We have put out a fact sheet um, so that, as, as you mentioned, this is at the end of the month. So the funds go live on June 30th, which means they're available for participants to um, do an interfund transfer into, for example, on July 1st. Uh, we have put out uh, a fact sheet on that, and there are birth date ranges where we suggest that these are what would be sort of when we model these funds, this is the birth date range we're modeling them for. But of course, only the participant can know what their particular financial situation is. And so they can use that as sort of guidance, but it's not, um, it doesn't bind them in any way. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes left, Kim, and I wanna shift gears because there are new loan options available to TSP participants because of coronavirus and the CARES Act. What are those options and what does somebody have to do to try to take advantage of them? So the CARES Act said that if you yourself had gotten the coronavirus um, or your spouse had gotten the coronavirus or you have experienced a financial hardship due to the coronavirus, you could then take uh, advantage of a, a higher loan amount Right now, the loan uh, limit is $50,000. Under the CARES Act, it goes up to $100,000. It also allows you to take out 100% of your vested account balance as opposed to 50% currently. Um, it also, the CARES Act also allows you to suspend payment on those loans. So for example, if you or your spouse have gotten sick or experienced financial hardship, you could take out a $75,000 CARES Act loan, um, and then you could suspend payment on that for the rest of this year. Um, interest would accrue. You'd begin to pay yourself back beginning January 1st of 2021. About 30 seconds left. Any sense yet of uh, the potential interest in that kind of loan, or does it depend when, when things get going? No, people have taken, we, we're tracking it, obviously, to see how people are responding. People are taking the loans. They are suspending the loans. It's not a huge number, but um, it does show that people uh, are interested and unfortunately have been affected by the COVID virus. Kim Weaver, the TSP, thanks very much for coming on as always. Thanks, Francis. Up next, moving ahead in the space industry, straight ahead on Government Matters, what's keeping some of the newest technology for space on the ground? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Be right back.
This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. American space companies could get tax breaks if a new bill in the Senate becomes law. The goal is to promote innovation in space. Here to look at some of the top trends in the space industry, Tom Zellabor, Chief Executive Officer of the Space Foundation. Tom, thanks for coming on the program. I'm, I'm struck by the introduction that I just read because it probably was only 10 or 15 years ago that we were just beginning to think about a space industry in the United States, that it wasn't going to be any more NASA determining what people did or didn't do in space. What's your sense of the way the landscape looks for the space industry in the United States today? First of all, good morning and uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I think uh, it's a great question um, because the space industry is absolutely booming right now. And I think a lot of that is being driven uh, by the um, insertion of so much uh, commercial enterprise uh, into the market. Um, we've uh, taken a look at this uh, in my organization, and we've uh, you know, seen that the industry is growing from about a $417 billion industry right now uh, into almost $3 trillion in the next 20 to 25 years, which is pretty incredible. But the biggest uh, trend that we're seeing is in uh, the data services uh, market. And uh, that in particular segment is gonna be going from right now about seven and a half billion to about 23 billion in 2025. Um, the other area of uh, a big time growth is uh, in small satellites. Um, they're faster to produce, uh, cheaper, and you can launch many at one time and uh, applications to the FCC are growing uh, rapidly. Uh, even companies like OneWeb, which you are probably aware, um, have uh, filed Chapter 11, just put in a request for 48,000 uh, new satellites and uh, SpaceX for another 42,000. So there's a, a lot of uh, trends that are um, sh showing here. And as part of the satellite growth, um, nanotechnologies are really uh, starting to boom as a result. When you talk about small satellites, uh, do, does the small satellite landscape uh, encompass constellations of small satellites that interact together and work together, or just a proliferation of individual small satellites that do one or, or several tasks, but do it independently of other satellites that are in, the, in, in orbit? No, we, we're seeing this as uh, these are networks, and uh, and that's why uh, data analytics is going to become so important. And one of the largest uh, areas um, of growth is in the uh, geospatial imagery um, market. And um, so these satellites will network together and provide uh, the data and uh, um, services that uh, the industry, or excuse me, the customers are demanding. And I think that's, uh, you know, you're going to see that continue. What are the biggest potential roadblocks to hinder innovation for these companies, both large and small, but I guess especially the small companies that are trying to get into the, the defense business? What are the biggest roadblocks for them to be able to continue to deliver innovation that their customers want? You know, I think, uh, um, I love the question because I think there's a lack of awareness uh, in uh, a general awareness of the opportunities that exist in the space economy. As I mentioned before, it's uh, growing rapidly. 
And then um, I think another area is uh, access to the top talent uh, that will be able to take uh, patents that might be available and then turn them into commercialization. Uh, as an example, I, we know that NASA has thousands of patents sitting on the shelf, and so we need entrepreneurs to um, to access those things and then, uh, of course, uh, find the resources that uh, to help them uh, commercialize. And then we also need some of the, you know, the experienced industry people uh, to make the connections uh, to other uh, members in the industry to, you know, to help them steer their efforts in the future. It's that, that answer is fascinating to me too, Tom, because it sounds like the potential roadblock that you see is policy, governance, uh, structure, and not technology. Sounds like you're confident the companies and have the technology piece down and they're going to be able to deliver on that part of it. I, I, I agree. I think the, um, uh, the technologies are um, well on their way. And I think that we're seeing uh, companies push the envelope on uh, what is, uh, you know, has been considered in the past uh, the standard or the norm. I think SpaceX is a great example of this. Um, you know, when you have a company that kind of pushes, uh, pushes out of the comfort zone, takes some smart risks and do things like we just saw, you know, the other week, uh, you know, where they're recovering their boosters uh, back uh, both at the launch site as well as out at sea. Um, that's uh, that's some pretty fascinating uh, things. So I think the you know the policies and regulations and all that will be the one part that I think is 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 tougher than the technology. I think you you let uh, people that ha are out of the box thinkers um, you know push the envelope, and I think good things will come from it. Tom Zellabor, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Up next, a digital acceleration for training in the federal government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, getting a leg up on online learning. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration says the Internal Revenue Service struggles to train its employees working from home. Agencies are finding digital learning can relieve some of the need for in-person interactions at the office. Kelly O'Connor is a principal at Boston Consulting Group, former product manager at the U.S. Digital Service. Kelly, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. What's the biggest disconnect that you've seen in government between what employees need training-wise and the way the vehicle that agencies use to provide that training. Uh, hi, Francis. Thanks for having me on. I think the biggest disconnect is kind of this mind shift, mindset shift from training people in project management, which is really plan focused, like deliver on time and on budget, to being more product management focused, which is all about users and solving the right problems. The disconnect then it strikes me that the prop the training problem is what you're teaching the people as much as the mode in which you teach them am i reading that right 
Exactly. You can do all the online training in the world. That's great. But if you're taking the wrong online classes and investing in the wrong online curriculum, it's not going to be helpful in delivering modern digital products to users. What's available? What's the landscape look like right now, Kelly? What's out there for agencies to consider? Yeah, there are some amazing programs out there, both online and classroom-based. Uh, I think you're talking to a few amazing instructors this week on your show. Um, I teach a class at Georgetown School of Continuing Studies. It's a classroom-based uh, product management class. But just to give you an idea of the format, it's three days, it's in October, and we have a product manager teach day one, a human-centered designer teach day two, and a full-stack engineer teach day three. And in the class, we actually build products, we do usability testing, we ship minimum viable products. So it's very experiential, but there are some amazing uh, online and classroom training. So my hope is that we shift away from certifications like the project management professional, the PMP, which is really a commodity in government. I mean, it's important to deliver on time and on budget, but that certification is useless if you're trying to deliver a great modern digital product. How has this shift happened? Is this just a matter of agencies doing what they've always done and it's a kind of a momentum uh, thing? Or is there another issue here in your view that's caused the agencies to kind of be where they are and not move to where it looks like they need to be? Yeah, it's all connected, right? So it's not just a training problem, it's what are the hiring requirements? If you go on USA Jobs and search for product manager, you're probably gonna get lifeguard, right? There's, there, you have to change job descriptions, you have to change evaluation criteria and give people the ability to take risks and try new tools and fail fast. And so it's a whole web of things in addition to training around hiring and evaluation criteria that also need to be updated. What does the interaction among uh, a, a product management type of uh, training, what's the interaction look like with financial management and with acquisition and with personnel and all of the other specialties in the federal government? Yeah, I mean, so the way I, you know, I've been working in government for a long time now, and I was kind of trained on, you take a long time and do these very detailed integrated plans but really, I think we have to shift to delivering something quickly and testing and seeing if it works rather than spending months and months on our, you know, financial plans and communication plans and things like that. So um, I think it's a much faster and more iterative cycle and it's a much it's a little bit riskier. So government needs to increase our appetite for you know, for failure, because that's what happens. Sometimes you deliver quickly, it's not the right thing, but you pivot rather than throwing bad money after good. For a, for a government environment, one of the, the deliverables with the way that things, the agencies are doing things now is you have, you mentioned the PMP as one certification. You have a certification at the end of it, and that demonstrates to somebody that you did something. How do you measure in a, in a more digital training environment how do you measure that somebody's now qualified to do something that they weren't qualified to do when they took the when they started taking the training? I think it's all about product outcomes and user satisfaction. So was that person able to go and ship a product that one users could figure out how to use and two it solved the right problem? And that doesn't mean you need a hundred KPIs, um, key performance indicators, or metrics. 
You just need a few metrics to say, did we solve the right problem for our user? And can our user easily interact with this tool? And is, there, is it a positive user experience? Um, we're obviously in a COVID environment where remote work environments are going to be what they're going to be for a long period of time. Agencies are starting to talk about coming back, but there are a lot of folks that don't expect people to come back for a long time, and some people might never come back. What's the implication there for training, both the way that people have been doing things and the way that you're proposing that the shift take place? Yeah, I think obviously online is preferable and required right now. Um, I'm old, I'm, I really enjoy the classroom training. I like that in-person kind of group projects and interaction, but I think we have to you know, make sure that the online classroom experience has parity with the, you know, the in-person. So I'm excited to work at uh, Georgetown to get their product management uh, up and running online. But right now we're limited to the, the in-person experience, but there are many other programs at Cornell, Harvard Kennedy School that have amazing online product and digital classes. So I'd encourage government employees to, to use their training allocations for those kinds of programs. Kelly O'Connor, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.